Turn with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter. <clears throat> Sermon text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And uh, as Brian mentioned, the, the topic of this morning's text is suffering. But you may have noticed, we've been going through 1 Peter for a while, that uh, really the topic of the whole book of 1 Peter is suffering. Um, and that... that often happens in, in books of the Bible. There, there is a topic that that book and that writer keeps working on and working on. And uh, so we, we're going to go one step further in Peter's discussion of, of the suffering of God's people this morning. Uh, before we read 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, let's pray together. Our Father, uh, you are sovereign and uh, you are good. And you are wise, and uh, we come before you, Father, to hear your voice, to, to have you, our good and wise and sovereign Father, speak into our lives, uh, help us to, to see the world rightly, uh, to see ourselves rightly, to see our trials rightly, uh, in a way that brings glory to you and enables us to persevere, uh, in the, not just persevere, Father, but persevere in hope and in joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Pain can be disorienting. You, you may have experienced times of, of physical pain that were so great that you just couldn't think about anything else. Your mind was distracted, unable to focus. Uh, you might even have forgotten about other important things because all you could think about was the pain. Well, if, if pain can be disorienting, suffering can be even more so. And I, and I just mean pain, whether physical, emotional, or relational, that just goes on and on and never seems to end. Suffering can mess with our heads. It, it, even our theology can get a bit wonky as we endure. Our confessional theology disappears and our functional theology begins to shine through. Suffering might make us think things like, well, well maybe God is angry with me, or, or, or maybe God has abandoned me to a life of misery, or, or maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Scripture exhorts us, uh, when you suffer, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. But, but if I'm doubting God's goodness to me, rather than trust him and do good, I'll, I'll, I'll likely end up either wallowing in my suffering or railing against it. 
So in order to entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good, you, you need to know God as your faithful creator, which means knowing about your God's faithfulness, that he is at work, uh, not just in the good times, but even in your suffering. And so our, our question this morning, one way of putting it is, is how do I know that God is faithful in my suffering? And the answer that we'll see is you, you know that God is faithful in your suffering once you see God is at work. God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith and to reorient your joy, to reassure your heart, and to renew your witness. Uh, that's the outline uh, for our uh, sermon this morning. You can find that on the back of the bulletin. God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith, to reorient your joy, to reassure your heart, and to renew your witness. We need to see that, that God is at work. Uh, God is at work. Um, seeing him at work is a reminder then that, that he hasn't abandoned us, uh, but that he is faithfully uh, maintaining faithfulness to his children, even in our suffering. Uh, now, remember the context uh, of this letter of First Peter up to this point. He's writing to Uh, at least relatively new Christians. Uh, The whole Christian movement was at most uh, 30, 40, 50 years old. And uh, when these young Christians had turned to Christ, they stopped participating in the immoral activities of those around them. Uh, They they didn't wholly remove themselves from culture, right? They didn't cut themselves off from society, but, but there were certain aspects of society which are inconsistent with a life of faith. Uh, so they, they removed themselves from those things. And this actually surprised the non-Christians, Peter says in chapter 4, verse 4, probably convicted them a little bit as well, uh, with the result that they began to speak badly about the Christian community. So this little community is facing social rejection uh, because of their faith and their uh, unwillingness to conform. And so Peter reminds them from the start Uh, of the letter, that this world is not their home, uh, that they are pilgrims and strangers and aliens and exiles and sojourners here. And that, that yes, we are here uh, now, present, engaged in the things of this age, but our home is in heaven. And we have an inheritance that, that will come at Jesus' return when heaven and earth become one. It's in this context that Peter tells us this morning what God is doing in this present age through our suffering. And as we've said, what we'll see is that God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith, to reorient your joy, to reassure your heart, and to renew your witness. So first, God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith. Uh, sometimes as uh, Christians uh, living in the 21st century, uh, living in America, we can be surprised by our suffering, right? Uh, we think often our lives are pretty good. Uh, we maintain a pretty strong delusion of control. And, and then something happens, uh, a car accident or a house fire or a lost job or a derailed career, uh, an illness, uh, the death of a loved one, a natural disaster, a rebellious child. And uh, we, we, we are startled by it. And we think, wait a minute, what? Where did that come from? Uh, what's going on? And for some, that surprise can begin to der- turn into doubt. Uh, well, well, wait a minute. If I'm, if I'm really a Christian, why did God allow that? Uh, if I'm really a Christian, why, why is life so difficult? 
Uh, I, I thought God would make everything better. If I'm really on the right path, why is it so hard? And Peter says right away in our text this morning, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says right away, don't, don't be surprised. This isn't strange. This isn't unusual, which of course means this, this is normal. This is to be expected. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you will have trouble. And yet it's, it's not just the expectation of suffering that we need to, to see here. It's the purpose of suffering as well, right there in that first verse. Peter calls our suffering fiery trials that have come upon us to test us. And uh, that language of trial is not new in the letter. Uh, way back in the first chapter, verses 6 and 7, Peter said, uh, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so according to Peter in, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and in right here, chapter 4, 12, uh, what do our trials do? Or, or better, uh, what is God doing in our suffering? Uh, he is refining our faith. Uh, God is your, your faithful creator using your suffering to refine your faith. And Peter doesn't bring this out of thin air. This isn't a new idea. Uh, way back in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we read, Behold, uh, this is God speaking, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before you. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And uh, th these verses refer both to the coming of, of John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, and of course the coming of Jesus, the Lord who has come to his temple. And Malachi goes on, speaking again then of the coming of Jesus, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years." And, you know, not only are, are we, as, as Peter already said, that we as the church are God's temple. Uh, according to Peter, we are also God's holy priesthood, called to offer our lives as a spiritual sacrifice acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. And so what then is the purpose of, of the trials? Well, they're, they're not, our trials, our difficulties are not random, uh, meaningless accidents in the purposeless narrative of history. Right? God is at work. God is at, at work to refine our faith. Jesus, like a, a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Which means every life-changing tragedy, every minor irritation, they are ordained by God to refine you like gold, to make you pure and beautiful. God is at work to make you beautiful. We can't always see it. We, we can't always understand it. But we know it because Scripture tells us here, this is what God is doing. He's, he's trying, testing, refining you to make you pleasing to him, beautiful in his sight. Now, verse 17 uh, calls this testing and trying judgment. 
And uh, we should realize that, that judgment, of course, does not always mean condemnation. We hear the word judgment, we instantly think condemnation. Uh, but, but all of this language, trial and testing and judgment, are, are all courtroom language. And, and what, when Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, he means that through our trials, God is testing and proving who we are. Not that God is condemning us, uh, but that he is proving our faith. Scripture teaches, of course, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took our condemnation at the cross, and for us, judgment will necessarily and ultimately result in the demonstration of our faith, and therefore our righteousness in Christ. And yet, Peter's point in bringing it up in verse 17 is to say that judgment doesn't have the same end for everyone. And so, verses 17 and 18, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Do you see what Peter is saying? He's saying, we have been saved through, through these trials, through this difficulty. We are saved because we have, quote, obeyed the gospel. And Peter means by that phrase what he always means in his letter. He means we believed the gospel. Uh, you obey the message by believing it. We have believed the gospel. But if we are saved through such trials and difficulty in this life, he's saying, what will happen to those who don't believe the gospel? What, what will be the outcome for them? And Malachi actually speaks of this too uh, in the very uh, next verse after talking about purifying the priests and their offerings. Uh, he says this, Malachi 3.5, then I, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. See, as Christians, we have begun to experience God's purifying work, but one day Christ will return to finally purify his land altogether. And on that day, those who do not obey the gospel of God will be removed from the land, finally. Now, surely uh, for Peter's hearers who were being rejected and despised and oppressed, this was meant to be a comfort. They, they were being rejected by the world, but Peter is saying the sin of their oppressors will not go unpunished, which actually enables them and it enables us to obey Paul's words in Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so as they suffer, they can trust, God is going to put things right. I don't, I don't have to take that into my hands. I can trust that my Father is going to put all things right on the last day. Our present suffering is a part of God's purifying work. He's refining our faith like gold to make us pure and beautiful in His sight. Now, one very important qualification of this, uh, th this does not mean that we invite suffering or that we seek it out. It simply means that we endure it. And as we endure, the very act of enduring refines our faith. And you might wonder how so, right? How does that process happen? What does it do? Well, that brings us to our next point. Uh, God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith and to reorient your joy. You know, some, when they face great suffering, begin to doubt their own faith, as if suffering proved their lack of faith. But really, their suffering can just as easily be read 
as evidence uh, of their faith, the faith that God is refining as silver and gold. But others, when they face great suffering, begin to doubt not their faith, but their God. Maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe God has just decided he's going to give me up to a life of misery. What kind of a God would let that happen, right? Won't, won't it ever end? Uh, if God really loved me, he would want me to be happy, and so he would take away all my troubles. And then I could be happy once more. Now, that line of thinking is, is premised on a, on a couple of lies, uh, two of which are, one, uh, that suffering means the end of joy. And two, that, which follows, therefore, joy can only, only come through the removal of my suffering. Uh, but actually, God is doing something in our suffering to bring us joy. Uh, right? Suffering can be disorienting, but it can also bring great clarity about what is truly important. And God is at work in our suffering to reorient our joy. Right? Suffering does not, does not end joy in life. It may feel like it at times. Certainly, it may seem like it, but it doesn't. God is your faithful creator. He, he is using your suffering to reorient your heart to greater joys to come. So verse 13, Peter says, but rejoice. Right? Remember, fiery trials, verse 12, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, there, there are two things that Peter calls us to rejoice in. First, our intimate relationship to Christ, and second, the glory that is to come. And so Peter says, uh, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, sharing uh, in the sufferings of Christ's is a bit of a tricky concept, right? We say, what in the world does that mean, to share in the sufferings of Christ? I mean, we, we don't suffer on the cross. Uh, we, we don't suffer to bear our sin or to bear anybody else's sin. Uh, but we do suffer, and, and remember the context of the letter, we do suffer at times the reproach of Christ. That is, he was rejected, and we are rejected for his sake. And Jesus said, since the world hated him, it would hate us as well. And so being rejected by others for Christ shows our intimate relationship to Christ. It shows what, what theologians call our union with Christ. We are united to him and, and associated with him and so rejected for his sake. And when we're, we are rejected for Christ's sake, we can rejoice that we share in his sufferings as people united to him. It would be like if you befriended someone whom, whom everyone else despised and they began to look down on you too, right? You begun to share, begun to share in their sufferings. And uh, though it might be sad that you're now suffering, assuming that your friend is worth it, right? Uh, you could rejoice that you, your rejection shows the bond of that friendship. There is a second rejoice statement though, in verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our joy is in our union with Christ, that, that he is ours and we are his, and in his glory to be revealed. Uh, presently, Christ continues, of course, to be despised and rejected by many. Uh, despised, by the way, by many who would say that they, they actually think very highly of Christ. Uh, they think he was a good teacher or a profound philosopher or a model person. But they despise the real Christ, right? The, the Son of God who came to bear sin. They think highly of him as a person, but they despise him as the unique Son of God. 
And so presently, many people think very little of Christ. We do not see him at the Father's right hand where he is reigning. Hebrews says we do not see everything in subjection to him. The world still rebels. But one day his glory will be revealed. Jesus will return in glory accompanied by the angels and we will see him in all of his resurrected splendor. And as you rejoice when someone you love is honored, we will rejoice. But more than that, we will share in his glory. Romans 8, 17 says, We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will rejoice in his glory displayed, but but we will also be glorified with him. Now, what does that even mean? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I know in part, but I can't know fully. It's going to be amazing. Uh, We will be transformed to be like Christ fully and finally. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. We will see his glory and we will be changed into his glory. Suffering does not have to be the end of joy in life because whatever your trials, whatever your struggles, if you are a Christian, right, a believer in the good news of Jesus' death for sin and his resurrection from the dead, you are united to Christ and that, that is a reason to rejoice. And when Christ returns, you will know and experience his glory. Scripture says even of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Joy does not come through the removal of trial, but from God's love in the midst of it, and our hope in God's promises at the end. God is using our trials then to actually reorient our joy away from created things in themselves to his love in Christ and to our union with Christ and to the glory of Christ. God is using our trials to to reorient our joy and and it is loving for God to do so Uh, because God knows that the things of this life cannot make us truly happy. God wants us to be truly happy, to have true joy. But to know true joy, our hearts must be weaned off of that which cannot satisfy and reoriented to that alone which can satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. These things are our joy, right? Our union with Christ and His glory to be revealed. And no amount of suffering, no amount of trials, no amount of difficulty can take them away. In fact, the difficulties of this present age increase our longing for the glories to come. They remind us of what is really important. And they set our eyes, they set our hope, they set our joy on those things. God is at work in your suffering to to reorient your joy to what really matters. Now, um, again, an important qualification uh, here, to be clear, we, we do not rejoice because of our sufferings, though we do rejoice in the midst of them. Uh, we, we ought not to be happy that we suffer, though we can be happy as we suffer. As we remember the Father's love and our, our union with Christ and the glories to come. God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith and to reorient your joy. And third, to reassure your heart. Now, as we've said, uh, suffering tends to mess with our heads, and it, it can even mess with our theology. Uh, or more accurately, it brings out our theology, right? Sometimes our, our confessional theology, what we, what we say we believe, uh, is not the same as our functional theology. Uh, we believe something with our heads, but when it comes down to it, when things get tough, 
what, what we believe in our hearts tends to leak out. And sometimes, whatever we might say, we believe a kind of God will make everything happy religion. But then Peter tells us God uses our suffering to refine our faith. And sometimes we believe that God, well, the opposite, right? God must be sadistic to allow such things. If he allows suffering, he must delight in human misery. But then we begin to see, no, God, in his love, is reorienting our hearts to what will make us truly happy. But the devil and our doubts conspire against us and we come up with another reason that maybe God is abandoning me. Maybe it's not because he is a really bad God. Maybe it's because I am a really bad person. Maybe God is just angry with me and I deserve it. Now, let me say on the one hand, right, this this impulse makes sense. It's not true necessarily, but it makes sense. Uh, Scripture teaches that we are sinful And uh, that suffering and death came into the world because of human sin. And so my suffering, we conclude, must be because of my sin. There are a couple of problems with that, though. Uh, Scripture teaches that Christ has gone to the cross for sin, and that any who believe in him are no longer enemies, but God's friends. God receives us in Christ and adopts us in Christ and delights in us in Christ. God is no longer angry with me, right? His, His anger was exhausted for me at the cross, Now I have not the Father's anger, but his love. So your suffering is not a sure sign that God is angry with you. In fact, if you are a Christian, I can say with confidence, God is not angry with you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, God is your faithful creator. And he is using your suffering to reassure your heart of his gracious presence with you. How does that work? Well, uh, look at verse 14. Verse 14, Peter goes on to say, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying if you are rejected for the gospel, it's actually, it's not a sign of God's anger. In fact, Peter says, you are blessed. Well, why would that be? Well, because, he says, the spirit of God and of glory rests on you. Not only do we have the hope of future glory, we experience some measure of present glory because of the gracious presence of the Spirit. Now, I don't don't know about you, but I don't go around uh, somehow sensing the Spirit's presence. I don't don't see his presence. I don't feel his presence. I don't hear him speak. Uh, But Peter says, if or, or even when you are insulted for Christ, that is a sign that God's Spirit rests on you. Why would that be so? Well, because you are being rejected for Christ. It's it's his aroma on you that many despise. Now, that being said, uh, we we should say as well that while I don't go around sensing the Spirit's presence day to day in some sensual or tangible way, those times when I have been most aware of God's presence with me have been times of trouble. I, I think that is because of a few reasons. First, when we undergo difficulty, life tends to slow down. Uh, Not in reality, but in our minds, right? We begin to ignore some things as unimportant. We begin to notice other things. We begin to be attentive in certain ways. We begin to look to God, and we begin to look for God, right? We seek His face. We seek His help. We seek His smile. We seek His care. We seek His comfort. And when we seek, we find. And so we are aware because we are attentive. Or put differently, we, we draw near to God in our trouble, and so we become aware of his nearness. 
But second, we are aware of God's presence in our suffering because God draws near to us. Right? As any good father, he knows the needs of his children. He, he is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And so many of God's people have attested to this fact that when they needed it most, God drew near. Many, right, not all, but many uh, Christians find that, that they look back on certain trials as precious times of enjoying the presence of their father. When they were able to say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my father was with me. And God will be with you. God will be with you in your trials. You, you may not sense him. You may not feel him. You may not know his presence in any tangible way. But, but Jesus has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. And as our shepherd, he walks with us through the valley. So God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith, to reorient your joy, to reassure your heart, and forth to renew your witness. Uh, now up, up to this point, we've talked mostly about how we think about suffering. Uh, do we think that God is angry or, or is he loving? Do we think that God is sadistic or, or is he at work? Do we think that we are guilty or do we think that God is actually present with us? But we don't just think about suffering, right? We, we act. We respond. We do something in response to our suffering. And as I mentioned at the start, oftentimes what we do is we, we wallow in it or we rail against it, right? If, if we're the, the more passive melancholy type, right, we, we might wallow in it. Woe is me, right? I'm doomed to a life of misery. Or if you're the more active, self-righteous type, you, you, you rail against it. How dare you, God, right? This isn't fair. Why are you doing this to me? But if God is our faithful creator, right, at work in our suffering, we ought not wallow or rail, but, but walk by faith in the midst of it. And so verses 15 and 16 say this, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You know, Peter here mentions a few other reasons why you might suffer. Uh, you might suffer because you're a murderer or a thief or a meddler. Uh, you might suffer because, you know, you're, you're mean or you're sneaky or you're underhanded. Or, or you might suffer because you've been unfaithful or you have a bad temper or you overindulge or because you're stingy or selfish or rude or deceitful, right? We could multiply all kinds of reasons why we might get ourselves into trouble. And Peter says, let, let none of you suffer for those reasons. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Your goal in your suffering is the same as your goal when you're not suffering, right? It's the glory of God. We, we, we do not ignore suffering, but we don't have to be overwhelmed by it either. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, part of the passage that was read earlier, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The death of Jesus is a reality in our lives. We die with him daily, but we are never dead. Right? The game is never over. We have not lost. God is at work in our suffering. And we can be at work as well, seeking his glory. And so Peter concludes uh, the last verse, verse 19. Therefore, let, us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You don't need to be overwhelmed by your suffering if, if we're wallowing in it, right, we're, we're overwhelmed. If we're railing against it, we're overwhelmed. Either way, it's controlling us. But we have seen that our faithful creator is at work in the midst of it, and so you can trust him. Trust him. Entrust your soul to him. To, to entrust something is to commit something of value to another for safekeeping. 
It's to put something in someone else's care and someone else's protection. Peter says, the one who made you is faithful. He is able to care for you. He made you, so he's powerful. And he's faithful to care for you, and so you can trust him. Now, if you're still not convinced that your father is faithful, look at the resurrection. Right? Look, look at the resurrection. Right At the cross, Jesus suffered. He was mocked, humiliated, scorned, rejected, abandoned, despised. But God was at work in his suffering. He was bearing our sin in his body on the tree. And while there, shortly before his last breath, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you. I entrust myself to you. And then he died. Now you might ask, okay, well, where where was God's faithfulness then? The one who knew no sin, the one who always did what pleased the Father, the Father abandoned him on the cross. He left him forsaken and alone. But of course, Scripture says that was necessary. The Father forsook Christ for a moment that he might be faithful to us forever. And if you are unsure of that, look at the resurrection. That There the Father was faithful to Christ. He rose him from the dead. He rewarded his obedience. The Father heard his prayer, his cries, his tears, and faithfully raised him from the dead. And so we trust that if we belong to Christ by faith, the Father will raise us as well on the last day. He will be faithful, whatever we endure in the present. So when you suffer, there's no need to wallow, or rail. You can entrust your soul to your Father. He knows what He's doing. He's a good God who cares for His children. Place what is most valuable to you in His hands while you do good. It's the trust, of course, that enables us to do good, and it's the doing good that is a sign that we truly trust. So if we don't trust God with our very souls, then we have to save them, in which case we live not a life of doing good, but a life of self-protection. But when we do good, even when it means trouble, we demonstrate our trust in our Father. That I'm going to obey you no matter what it brings. Your Father is faithful. He cares for the birds of the air, Jesus says. Are you not of more value than they? Now you might think, well, okay, what what if my suffering is is not for doing wrong, but it's not for the name of Christ either. Most of our suffering day by day is not the reproach of Christ. But really, most of what we said uh, still applies, doesn't it? God uses our trials to refine our faith, whatever those trials are. God uses our trials to reorient our joy, to point us away from created realities that spoil and fade, and to eternal realities, imperishable and fading, ready to be revealed on the last day. God uses our trials to reassure our hearts, right? Whatever trials you go through, look to your Father in the midst of them. Seek His face. Ask for Him to strengthen your faith, to believe in His presence, even when He feels absent. God uses our trials to renew our witness as we live for eternal realities rather than temporal, for the Creator rather than created things, and as we entrust our souls to our God. And so let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good, knowing that God is at work in your suffering to refine your faith, to reorient your joy, to reassure your heart, and to renew your witness to his glory and honor. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we we are so prone to forget what you are doing. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us in the midst of our very real, difficult, trying struggles and difficulties and pain. We need your spirit. 
We need your spirit to point us again to you, to remind us of your love in the cross and of your faithfulness in the resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.